Welcome to the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. If you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, please follow, hit the like button, or any subscribes. It really helps us with the algorithms. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is produced by the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum. All opinions are those of the speakers. We invite you to join us on the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at SCGCPF for more fun. Now, let's get on with this installment of Santa Cruz Coffee Break. We'd like to welcome everyone to the 37th Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum podcast. And today we're going to feature Steve Ocello. And normally I ask them, I, we, 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 we ask a question of, can you give me a piece of advice that would be the best for, um, what's your best piece of advice for somebody coming up? And, and Steve has already done that. And this is Steve's <laughs> piece of advice. Oh to my me, God. the coolest trait a musician can have is to know a lot of songs. And whenever I ask somebody who knows a lot of songs how they learn so many, they always say something to the effect of, I played a lot of gigs with a lot of different people and the repertoire built up over time. I feel like this is my era to play a ton of gigs and initial, internalize a bunch of tunes. I'm so grateful to get to play every, here every weekend with the best of the best. Let the fun begin. Oh, yeah, you're, wow. Thank you for <laughs> reading that all. That's, yeah, of course, my post about my uh, steady gig over at Spanish Bay Resort uh, playing jazz with uh, Andy Weiss, great, great uh, um, Central Coast drummer Andy Weiss, and uh, yeah, Gary Meek, who's a great saxophone player and a piano player, and uh, Bill Spencer plays piano, and so I'm sort of there every Thursday night and a lot of other Fridays and Saturdays, and it's been, um, yeah, just a great steady gig to have, learning experience, and yeah, it's, it's as a freelance basis, Steve's played probably with most everybody in, in this area. Uh, Latin Jazz Collective, um, along came Betty, uh, the Roger Eddy Band, uh, Cow Bop. Um, I've worked with, I've worked, yeah. <laughs> I've worked with, I've worked with Steve with uh, Keith Greninger um, uh, and uh with Lauren Monroe and her new love orchestra, which I'd really like to ask you. I just saw her going out on tour. Are you going? Yes. Yeah, we're preparing. We've been rehearsing. Um, last couple of days we rehearsed. Yeah, we're going out in uh, March, towards the end of March. And um, yeah, we're going to head to the East Coast. Um, as you know, uh, um, she's an artist as well as uh, her husband, Rick Allen, uh, drum, the drum legend Rick Allen. He also does visual art as well so we're going to um near miami and playing um one of their art shows but we're also heading up to new york uh pennsylvania to do some other play at uh, um what is it city winery i think there's one in dc and one in uh in new york city as well yeah coming up to the end of the month yeah we're gonna we're gonna head out on a little little eight day tour <laughs> how much how much fun can that be i I, I've I've had the opportunity to work with 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 Steve and Rick and and these two guys form a pocket that is it, it's like they're they're breathing through the same nostril it, it it's really amazing how 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 tight you guys are together he's you know I mean and yeah I shouldn't be too self <laughs> too self deprecating I'm really bad at self deprecation no but he is uh, <laughs> the times I've you know like you know. For when I first played with him, yeah, it was just like, you know, okay, you try to listen, you try to try to lock in, and it's like all this stuff just happens, was happening that I haven't had with too many other drummers. Maybe the closest one 
Um, you know, Jimmy Norris has that, you know, kind of feel to his playing as well, that just grounded feeling. But all this stuff was happening with Rick. And uh, I sort of just thought, wow, like, I, this is pretty good. We're locking in. I sort of, after the rehearsal, I thought, this might have something to do with him being, like, you know, a total, like, legend, you know. And he lives up to every every note of it. He is uh, it's just kind of one of those constant practicer guys like times i've traveled with him before we did stuff a few years ago and we're sitting around the airport and you know it's not long before he's sitting there doing stuff working with his, his feet and his arms and and you know just coming up with little grooves of how he's all working together because you know like his feet he has to be like extra you know on top of that and so he is just you know true percussionist who never stops practicing and it's just uh like all of us other musicians, you know, it's like we just, you know, uh, talent is just working on it and and loving the actual work of, you know, your instrument every day. So, yeah, he's, he makes it easy. He makes it easy. You guys do a, um, it's a really great um, combination when we get to see a tad just disappeared in the background there. Now he's coming back. Nope. He's over Whoa. there doing something. Look, and he's really small. Um <laughs> You also are a band leader for La Palma School. Yes, yeah, I've been the director of bands there, yeah, for uh, full-time. It's been seven years, and I, uh, but I was there a couple years before just doing one class. And yeah, so in total, it's been nine years I've been there. And they and they and they're okay with you taking eight days off to go be famous. <laughs> you know, it's um, they are super supportive. The principal there, uh, David Sullivan, is super cool. Um, it's definitely you know this one. Yeah, I had, had to kind of finagle a little bit to get to get time off. And um, um, so you know they they've been you know really flexible with me um in the past and and coming up here in the future. I'm not sure how it's going to go going forward. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if I get all like too personal or something. But yeah, I think I'm not sure how it'll go next year um, So for for this. So. so is that what you put on the leave request that you actually need to go out and be famous? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Cover my classes. I'm going to go out and yeah. <laughs> what, what, maybe, maybe you should promise to wear their t-shirt at every gig. <laughs> that's right that's <laughs> promote the school yeah it's a it's a tricky thing I, it to uh balance it all and uh i know my i've just gotten you're saying so like the youtube thing and you know, i did a few videos throughout the pandemic you know and 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 finally got to have a little extra the silver lining have a little time to do some projects i wanted but a lot of stuff has been on the back burner pretty much conspicuously for the last nine years <laughs> you know all these <laughs> directions I was, you know, had planned and going. And, um, um, so it's definitely not ideal. My, my little joke is that it's not, I'm not juggling anymore. I'm just deciding which ball to drop. It's just, you know, and, and that goes for everything too. Not just, you know, my educator, my musician and my, you know, it's like all these things I'm with just my wife spending time with her, my kids, um, my brother who's actually visiting now, but he lives up in Seattle. Um, I know if I answer the phone and we talk, we're going to be on the phone for three hours. And so sometimes it's like, all right, am I going to be a good brother and, but not practice for three hours? Or am I going to be a good, you know, musician and ignore like my kids or it's, it, 
it's a negative way to look at things maybe, but I've kind of just gotten, uh, <laughs> the busier I've gotten, it's sort of forced me to, you know, prioritize the immediate <laughs> need, you know. As they say, life is what happens while you're making other plans. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There's so much, yeah, like even, yeah, just stuff popping up all the time. Just... I think that's pretty common in the, in the, in the music world with, um, people that know what they're doing and, and, uh, are easy to work with, they get in demand, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I've noticed that. It's funny, the whole, yeah, stereotype of the, you know, the the lazy musician or, you know, I love my fans, you're the reason I get out of bed at noon every day. It's like just the whole, all the stuff, you know, stereotypes like that is like people, you know, the musicians I know, yeah, it's like just nuts. Like um, Tammy Brown is a, uh, in this project with Lauren Monroe and we're always talking about, I was like, okay, looking at our calendars, I have one day off in 43 days. <laughs> oh yeah, I have, you know, it's just like, it just gets ridiculous. And yeah, because you're trying to kind of cobble together a life, you know, out of, out of all this stuff. And so um, there's just a whole balance. If you say no enough times to somebody you want to work with, they, you're, you're going to be the guy who said no, and then they'll search elsewhere. Or if you're if you take on too much and say yes, then your quality of your output's gonna go down a little bit. And so then you're chipping away at your reputation. Um, so yeah, it's just always this little little balancing act of, uh, and yeah, I've noticed that too, just getting that just total fatigue and, but. Uh... <laughs> let's let's jump back to the beginning for a minute. What what got you started as a musician? How did How did it all begin for you? Um, you know, it's funny, I've realized more, I, I started earlier than I thought. Um, I used to kind of feel like I started playing guitar when I was about 12, 13 years old and from there. Um, but I, I realized, um, probably back in, geez, what was it now? I just learned uh, in 85, the Casio SK-1 keyboard <laughs> <laughs> came out and somehow I ended up with one when I was about 10 and, um, I, I guess that was, you know, and always back in the uh, era of cassettes, which are kind of funny, they're coming back now. I have this little project where I'm making little cassettes for it even now, and I have like, you know, dubbing stuff. But um, I sort of was one of those kids who just uh, had a little, t all these little tape decks, and I was always repairing stuff or taking stuff apart. So I'd always be like, if a tape broke, I would unscrew it and tape it back and make all, you know, and so I had like this little sampling keyboard and these tape decks and some little microphones and my brother and I used to make these little like radio shows and I was kind of like the sound designer. So I would get, you know, oh, they go, they open the door, they walk into a restaurant. So I would sample myself saying, so, you know, watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. And you, <laughs> you push enough keys and it all of a sudden sounds like there's a, a chatter, indistinct chatter. Um, so I, I look back and go, okay, that was kind of my, and now I'm teaching an audio production class and I'm sort of thinking back going, okay, I actually was sort of doing like editing and sound designing and, you know, through really crude ways and, and, you know, you tape something on a tape deck, play it back, record something on another tape deck, and then you can overdub that way with, without multi-tracking, you know? And, uh, so I kind of went from there. Um, my grandmother played piano and um, actually, she doesn't play much now. She's still around. She's 103. <laughs> and she was uh, 
um, kind of like our friend, uh, uh, my childhood friend, Dane Kai, she played every instrument. Um, she uh, went to Fresno State as a music major and got a e uh, degree in music education. Um, so she played like clarinet, alto saxophone, oboe. Um, she was in like an all girls dance band playing saxophone. Wow. She yeah, she marched across the Golden yeah. State Bridge when it opened in, for the, with the Fresno State Marching Band. <laughs> um, so yeah, 103 years old now. So, uh, so were your first music lessons from your grandmother? Yeah, yeah, and me remembering back to, yeah, I used to go, she lived next door to us. I grew up out in Hollister. Um, so we were way out in the country, Santa Ana Valley, and um, I would go next door and ask her to play the entertainer for me like every day. <laughs> uh, so she had the sheet music on her piano and grandma played it, you know, and she would do the stride thing. And she had these long fingernails and I remember they would click on the keys. So I always remember this like just kind of vivid memory of that, like that clicking sound and that ragtime kind of thing. Um, and then I would noodle around on her piano a little bit too. Um, and I always knew like, yeah, that she was a musician and a multi-instrumentalist. Um, and then her husband, my grandfather, who... He passed away when I was like two, but he played tuba and French horn, and they met in the um, Fresno band when they went to college together in Fresno. Um, so yeah, so she. And they say band romances never last. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, pretty classic. He was in the military too, and and he, you know, in World War Two and stuff and everything. But uh, yeah, um, he's. He was a badass, but yeah, so she was a big inspiration. Um, and then also my brother, who I mentioned, he's two years older than me. He, and still continues to this day, he has a, he, he's not a musician, he's an artist and a book designer, but he has a voracious music appetite. So he was the first guy, when I really properly got started, he, I think, gave me a, um, you know, talking about, again, the age of cassettes. He, I had a cassette. He would give me kind of all his stuff that he already consumed. So I had a Jimi Hendrix smash hits, um, you know, compilation tape. And I remember, uh, and I was a lefty, so I played backwards. And I remember him telling me, it's like, oh, Jimi Hendrix was a lefty too, you know? And I kind of just made me go like, oh, I could play guitar too then. <laughs> just as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old. Um <laughs> So that and my grandmother gave me my first guitar, little nylon string guitar. And um, actually, I really remember Dayan was kind of there when I first started. My brother wanted to play guitar. And I remember Dayan coming over to our house. And I didn't even play yet or even want to play. And uh, he was teaching my brother a guitar lesson. And um, I remember, what did he have? He might have had, I forget if he had like a 12-string guitar or something. But I remember Dayan just like tuning the guitar all up super quick, you know, with this perfect pitch and, and giving my brother a lesson. And then I sort of, even then I kind of was like, that's what I'm going to do. Like, like my brother's going to do it. I'm going to copy him, but I think I'm going to stick with this. And uh, so from that, that point, yeah, I sort of just would always, you know, be influenced by my older brother. So yeah, about 12, 13, I started taking guitar lessons um, down at the local music shop in Hollister. And it wasn't, wasn't long before the store owner, passed me on to a, um, you know, okay, I can't teach you anymore. And I got to study with this guy, Ed DeGroote, who uh, he's still playing at the San Juan Mission, um, which I guess is like the mission that has the 
the longest continuous service that they've had services or whatever, like every Sunday. So uh, this guy plays organ, another kind of multi-instrumental guy, played everything, accordion, bass, guitar. So I got to study with this guy, Ed DeGroote, who was just uh, an amazing teacher. The first song he taught me was Take Five <laughs> by wow. Brubeck. It was like, okay, this is not like he just knew he'd just throw something really hard at me. Um, yeah, and then from guitar... Um, you know, I thought, okay, I'll be a guitar player. And then I had the bright idea to, you know, have these jam sessions at my house and host. And, uh, when we're young, you know, nobody's driving. So I thought I should get a, uh, back line at my little jam room at my place. My parents were super supportive. I had a little jam room. And so I bought a drum set and I bought an electric bass and I had some stuff set up. And so my idea was, you know, people could come over and, and I could play guitar and they would they would back me up and I would sing and play guitar. And then it wasn't long uh, before I was the guy with the bass. <laughs> and then that you're you're pretty much uh, guaranteed that if you own a bass and you can, you know, play halfway decent, you're going to you're the bass player now. And that's kind of what happened a little bit, especially, you know, starting with our band Water uh, back in the mid 90s, you know, with Dan and Art Alm and our, whole, you know, kind of first iteration it was kind of like i wanted to be involved somehow and i had a van <laughs> you know or i could haul oh. gear stuff so the Man, class you're setting yourself up classic yeah <laughs> so, so, yeah don't get I got the base and i got a van <laughs> i think the, the last thing would be i have a pa <laughs> that's yeah, right and i said they don't get good at something you don't like to do <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that was, it's like, okay, well, Steve, we, uh, Art plays piano, you know, Dane can play bass, but he's going to play, you know, guitar or sing or play a, a wind instrument or all his, you know, multi-talented things. So it was like, we need a bass player and you have a bass. And, uh, and so it was a really good influence on me. And, um, I first was on electric. They kind of influenced me. We went to, um, we were all at Cabrillo back in the day there, 93 kind of 93 through 97 um our saying yeah we went forever I'm still at the brill was our saying <laughs> <laughs> that music program for all it was worth they had amazing still it's one of the best around you know and so we did um before i even really knew i was end up being playing jazz and latin jazz i took mike strunk's latin jazz ensemble class and i was just so green you know then but i so i remember bringing my bass and kind of that was Kind of the beginning of that and then it wasn't long then before um you know jazz circles upright bass was the thing to have and then a lot of the you know that was americana and stuff seemed like it was just starting to kind of really pick up steam and laura ellen at k-pig it was sort of this like coalescing kind of vision there in the early mid 90s and a lot of the roots music and the acoustic thing um and it really kind of, yeah, just took off from there. Um, yeah, and once I got the upright bass, that was, you know, then you're really working every day and you're you're, you're uh, going for 43 days straight. <laughs> so, so it sounds like your plan kind of from the beginning was to be a professional musician. Yes, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, you know, and I still um, had, you know, like every kid who gets a guitar and learns to you know, goes to a party and impresses a girl with singing a song is like, you, you think, you know, yeah, oh, of course there's like Mozart, Jimi Hendrix, me. And then, you know, like you, you just think 
Auto, and it's, natural progression. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the uh, the ego of it, and especially being teamed up with Dan. You know, of course, we kind of thought, yeah, we're gonna have a a band and just be like, you know, everything's just gonna rock it up and it's gonna be this thing. But uh, so we, you know, and still to this day, things are still, you know could go in these directions of really getting to share music and on a higher level but yeah the the blue collar musician side of it um in the trenches so to speak i have yeah always had there's sort of been two sides to me that way where i want to be original and be an artist and 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 make a, an impact and spread love is really my main goal overall whether it's as a hired gun or as an original artist um but yeah i always kind of had a romanticization of like paying your dues, going in the trenches, and really just having like legit music skills. Um, and that was kind of, we had that kind of vision with Water too, um, was almost kind of like, you know, the band. It's like, we're, our, we're a band, we have songs, but we can also be a band for hire. So Art Alm and Dan kind of had this vision too. And, and actually, in a way, that's what really you know, led us playing with Keith, to, with Keith Greninger, um, was like, Hey, you know, he sort of ha had us in the first days. It was like, we were added on as a band. Like I'm going to have this backup band. That's a band. And, um, it was pretty cool. It was a really good idea, you know, in, in a way, cause we had the best of both worlds. Um, Dane had his songs and we do that and share, share stuff with Keith. And then we would back up Keith as well. And, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a really good experience. But yeah, I've kind of had that kind of thing too. Like I've always wanted to learn, you know, reading music, music theory, learning to play, like learning songs fast, playing in any, you know, anyone's band. I want to try to be able to hang any style. Um, and in a way, now that I look back, you're asking about advice. Um, you know, I, I now look back and I realize what a valuable thing that was that I went through but at the same time um you know it's kind of the hack of all trades thing a little bit where sometimes like I'll I'll tell young musicians or that you know they're maybe if they're deciding like it's like yeah I'm doing all these cover bands you know am I going to just be a jukebox in 10 years or maybe I should focus on my original music and I definitely would say that would be an advice thing um the unsolicited advice would be uh you know definitely find what you love the most and maybe kind of stick with it when you have the luxury of being a young kid and you can be in a van and tour and you don't have to have, you know, life make you prioritize everything. Um, that, that would be maybe something that I maybe would have done a little bit differently. Cause I, in the early days, I basically said yes to anything. Um, and so, you know, I, I ended up doing, you know, gigs that were good experience and i always have fun no matter what i'm playing but sometimes i kind of go like oh man i could have been you know if i would have sort of focused a little bit more maybe i could have really figured out okay i want to do this this and this and this style and then sort of you know you can't you can't do the gigs you want until you say no to the gigs you don't want you know is our saying and so i, I think for a long time i was just basically building up experience and and paying my dues and it was amazing and i learned so much and now it's shaped me to to be you know pretty versatile and and valuable as a musician but i could see that i was sort of rudderless and it was a, a while before i really kind of started going like you know 
I want to do this style more, so maybe I should say no to that style and go to this style, or just maybe I shouldn't try to play uh, guitar, mandolin, banjo, and bass, and maybe I'll just focus on bass for a little while so that I can really, you know, I was kind of like the utility guy for a while on stuff, which was really good because I was able to hold on to gigs, and if stuff, personnel shifted around, it's like, all right, now... Steve, you're uh, you're on cello and mandolin now, and oh, you play guitar too. Bring your bring your Princeton reverb and your Strat, and and you know it's like all these. So it's a blessing, you know, and it's been really cool. But uh, yeah, I think focusing a little more, you know, that you can take one thing a little farther than a bunch of things, kind of. That kind of comes with age, you know. That, that, that really does. It, 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 and you, you said it, uh, it, it comes with age and experience. And mm -hmm. you had all these experiences. Well, your experience was different than the young kid who goes out and tours with the band. And, you know, they, they spend 18 months in the, in, in the van and they break, you know, they, they, they get someplace. But you, you, you've gone to a really, I think it's just fascinating. We, we had a, we did a podcast with Tim Connell. And now I'm I'm studying with Tim on mandolin. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah, and he's taken me completely back to the roots. You know, learn to read music, learn this, learn that, learn this, sure. do 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 do, and it, it it's really fantastic. But what he really likes to do is teach in school. Uh huh. And he's structured the lessons around like being a school teacher. And yet, you know, here's this guy that's been all around the world with, you know, a million people. You know, and didn't go to, didn't, didn't start on mandolin, graduated with a penny whistle degree. Oh, wow. Yeah. Celtic, kind of Celtic thing. Celtic, yeah, yeah. So beautiful. From uh, um, Berkeley. But um, it, I think the experiences just come different places, at different ways and different times. I mean, you played Monterey Jazz Festival. Uh, a lot of people would pretty much think that's the top of the heat. Yeah. It's an amazing festival. Yeah, I know. And it's, I think too, that's one of those ones where it's like the longest continuously running festival, not the oldest one, but one of the longest continuing um, uh, uh, festivals that's, you know, been around. And yeah, that definitely, you know, you feel like, yeah, when you're young, there's going to be like a moment where you'll just feel like now I'm a badass, you know, or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> I realized that, yeah, you never feel that way. You always kind of, or for me, you know, I have, you know, part of my journey, I think, too, is it's taken me a while to kind of build up that, like, from being so much off balance all the time, I've almost gotten more used to being off balance than feeling solid <laughs> and confident. And now, even now, I'm really feeling more, like, more powerful than I ever have. But but um, playing the Monterey Jazz Festival did kind of become one of those moments Um I did it a few times. The one that really stuck with me was the last time, I mean, maybe now it was three, four years ago, um, with Andy Weiss and the Monterey, what was it called? Monterey Bay Jazz All-Stars. And that, I definitely felt like, okay, like he's asking, like, first of all, when he, you know, and I've talked with Andy about this too, and he's great, like psychological music stuff too. He's such a wise musician, like, you know, well, first of all, like I asked you because I knew you could do it. So it wasn't like asking and then you had to prove it. He was like, OK, he knew I could hang. And 
that definitely kind of solidified me to feel a little more like, okay, like I'm, you know, it's all these little decisions too with the the band director job. Um, I think at a, at a certain point, I you know, and it's been kind of divided. Like I said, I think next year I'm not sure I'll be returning there. I might do like maybe one or two classes um, because I want to sort of be in this Lauren Monroe thing. We're going to travel a little bit, and it's sort of not going to be conducive to both things um but uh i sort of had this thing where i was like when i i kind of like reinvented my whole thing i'm 2005 i moved to monterey and decided to uh finish my uh bachelor's degree i knew uh ray drummond a really prominent uh jazz bass player um was teaching there and i always kind of thought that like you know, it was like the Luke, you know, like, you must complete the training. Like, I just <laughs> I was like, you know, you got to go back. Ray Drummond is right here. You never, you I dropped out of school when uh, I started touring with Keith and Dane. And I felt like I'm already paying my rent. I'm doing gigs. I don't need to, you know, so I kind of left school. I finally decided to sort of reinvent everything and came back to Monterey in uh, 2005 and um, study with Ray and sort of complete that thing. So I had, uh, yeah, it sort of wanted, you know, felt like I'd played some jazz, but I never really, you know, kind of taken it to that next level there. Um, so that was, yeah, kind of this whole part of my life where um, I was just reestablishing everything. And I even like musically too, I sort of, I don't know, look back now, I was like, God, I probably shot myself in the foot a little bit. I, I had this sort of thing, uh, what was that uh, Jerry Seinfeld thing where he talked about is like sometimes he would throw away all his old jokes and then he would have to come up with all new ones. And, you know, it was this big challenging. So I thought I'm going to not play any of my licks that I worked up. So I sort of moved to Monterey, didn't really know a lot of people. And then I was like, I'm not all this thing I've been building up. I'm going to just not do any of it, <laughs> you know, so none of my little licks and patterns. And he, sort of reconceptualized the whole way that I was kind of playing jazz. And so it was really almost like, yeah, your legs, you broke and it healed, but we need to re-break it and reset it straight now. Like, you know, so it was like this painful thing where I first moved to Monterey and I was really not playing kind of as good as I probably could have if I would have sort of relied on my old crutches of, of music survival. And so I was, you know, kind of working my way up really from the bottom. And so sometimes, you know, I do some gig, you know, I was like, okay, we're going to go and, uh, you know, busk here and you'll get like 15 bucks or we're going to do this or maybe play with people who weren't like the best people. And then I'd kind of come away and be like, God, okay, so that's like, that's going to be my gig, you know? And I sort of got this weird decision where it was like, you know, it's like this, you know, too much time, you know, overthinking stuff. It's like, am I really meant to be a musician? Am I really, you know, this and that. And, and, uh, then when I got the band director job, it was a little bit like, I got a little bit scared where I realized I could do this whole job teaching all these kids music day after day. And I could not play one note. I could just tell them, Hey, you're doing this play it, you know, do that note or whatever. And I could just let my complete music thing just completely slide for my own performance. And, uh, that year doing that with Andy Weiss for the Monterey Jazz All-Stars definitely kind of made me sort of go like, no, nah, I've come, like I've sort of played, it would be stupid 
And of course it would like crush my soul and everything too. But it was like, it just wouldn't be intelligent to sort of be like, yeah, I'm not at a level where it's like, I'm either going to be like a really good performer or I'm just going to like not try to constantly be gigging and not quite being up to snuff. And it's sort of this painful experience if you're always like, you know, trying, but not like succeeding, you know? And so that definitely was one time where I really actually felt like the set was over and I'm like, all right, cool. Like, I guess I meant to like perform, you know, and I, I love teaching too. It is, you know, I, it's a separate gift from performing. Some people have both. Some people have one or the other. Um, not everybody some amazing players suck at teaching, you know, they just have no patience or they can't explain it or, um, and I, and I do believe like the modern musician, you know, I kind of got this from, um, what's his name? Um, um, Michael, Michael Davis. He has a, he has a podcast called uh, hip bone music. Um, he's a trombone player. He plays with the rolling stones and stuff. And he's just done all this, like, um, you know, heavy stuff with all the heaviest cats but he runs a podcast and have all these top-notch classical musicians and you know symphony players jazz players like you know randy brecker and like all these you know classical jazz world people and the one common thread i sort of got was you know the modern musician has to kind of do three things perform write music and teach you know and even if you're you know not even writing original music and releasing albums, but maybe you're writing some exercises or writing a student piece for your band or like I've written a lot of arrangements for my jazz ensemble class that I teach where I know like these are the guys I have in the band. I'm going to write for them. Um, so I really do like you got to have that tripod, you know, so it's not that I'll that I wouldn't teach, but just that it was I would not give up performing to just be a teacher and in some ways there again is dropping the ball um where doing you know the band director job definitely made it so i kind of burning candle at both ends so i know it's made me like have times where i practiced less or i've eaten a couple you know lost opportunities where you know i've learned now to sort of under promise and over deliver but definitely the early days where I just would try to do, you know, oh, this is a neat new opportunity and then say yes and then maybe be overwhelmed and not happening often. But, you know, when it happens well, once, it's too many. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like you've built a really solid foundation for moving forward on. I mean, essentially, with all this experience and background behind you, you're getting closer to being able to choose the direction you want to go um, simply because you have this solid foundation in so many areas. And I think that's one of the things a lot of musicians lack is they'll work so hard in one specific direction that, you know, they don't have the, the breadth of capability or understanding even um, as to what their limitations might be. Um, and that can really trip people up. Yeah, no, you are. Yeah, that is right on the money. Yeah, definitely. The and in fact the, and that's kind of that thing. You know what's it called? The the Dunning Kruger effect. <laughs> is that what that is? The comp. My my friend Stu Reynolds calls it the competence to confidence ratio. Ah, uh, like you said. You know you you realize what you don't know, 
And uh, I think that's what makes, you know, when you're a young kid and you learn a few chords, it's like, I can play one ACDC song. That's it. I'm going to be a rock star. It's all, it's all, you know, then you realize, yeah, the more you go that you, uh, you, yeah, yeah, you realize what you don't know. You, 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 you bring you bring up a question that we're we're, we're just started. Um, what song would you not be able to play in Guitar Center? <laughs> it, what's, what's the it? one? What's the one song that you would absolutely not play in Guitar Center? Oh my God! I don't know. I oh jeez, I don't know. So that's like the opening riff, to the Sweet Child of Mine. Song. There you are. Okay. <laughs> You can you can, you can you can you can run with that. I, I want to ask you about. Uh, we're in Steve's music shed, and we're, we're out behind his house, and, and and here's the shed, and you see the saw on the wall, and you see this is all music related. But yeah, um, as a stand-up bassist, I, I know that stand-up is one of the hardest things in the world to amplify. Yeah, definitely. How do you do it? Um, okay, so how long is the podcast? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, I know it, that it is a, uh, um, it is, it is a, it is an art form, and it's something that you probably have modified and tweaked and, and added this or something like that, but you put a pickup on a stand-up. Sure, yeah, no, it's... You're a badass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had a long, kind of, a little bit of nuts, a little bit nuts on my journey, and I've been really lucky... Um, you know, obviously, you know, we're talking about Santa Cruz guitars and just what a wonderful, rich community like Santa Cruz is. Um, and then we also have, uh, Rick Turner, um, there with Renaissance. And so he's, um, he has a bass pickup that he, um, it's like his design. Um, actually it's, this one's in the case right here. Um, I sort of have just two upright bases. I should have got that one out, but, uh, two upright bases. Yeah, I have two. I know my little tiny little shed here. It's like if I played anything else, it would be it would be way better. But yeah, so I have this sort of little bass. It's a it's a regular basses most people play are three quarter size, unless you're a really tall guy, you might play a full size. Or if you really want that extra little bit of air, um, which doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's gonna be louder. Sometimes the the shape of the bass really and the way it projects and how much air it can push out. <laughs> the f holes so i have this three-quarter bass that's kind of set up to sort of play um i can play with no amp on it but i have this other one that's a half size upright bass i call it my electric upright bass <laughs> um so i had uh yeah kind of early days cl just classic you know frustrations you get the i got it like a fishman that like clips on the bridge so you're automatically killing your acoustic sound because you're clipping the bridge um and then of course you're it's just not does not amplify very well you're going to deal with once you go past a certain volume you're getting feedback um if the stage volume's too loud it's going into the f holes it's making the whole body vibrate um so and it's kind of that um funny my audio production class we just did a whole kind of um intro to miking guitar amps and the kind of just the very basic like you know close mic and then one ambient mic you can have an amplifier you know um stories of like whatever jimmy page putting an amp in a hallway and miking it like that and but we looked at the whole history of les paul and how he invented the electric guitar where it was like the steel railroad tie 
you know, and then like basically it was kind of like a big four by four with those the hollow body kind of sides that clipped onto it, you know, or like went on. And it was just sort of that realization of like, you want something, if you want to be loud, you know, and be at certain higher volumes, you, um, you want something that is like a solid body that will not actually vibrate. You know, the whole thing with an electric guitar is it's a hunk of wood, like acoustic guitar. Yeah. That top, that flat top is just like, you know, breathing and everything you do on it is like part of that sort of organism, you know, of the guitar, right? It's kind of all like alive or something. But so then the electric guitar, it's like you're dampening it down so that you can then have the magnetic pickup and then it's not going to just create all that problematic feedback and stuff. Um, so uh, an upright bass being what it is, it's designed to be sympathetic and just anything. So if you're next to like a guitar player's amp or if you're next to anything, so, um, but, but the more you dampen that down, then it's going to just sound like crap. Like, cause the cool thing about the upright bass is it has that growl and it has that acoustic side to it. And so I think when I sort of did this whole journey, which I was pretty uncommon, I think of kind of what I went through, um, like, um, yeah, I sort of wanted, I, I was thinking I should just get an electric upright bass. Cause that's what, you know, if you want to be loud, especially like all the Latin jazz guys, they have those baby basses and it's like, you, you just need to have that punchy sound. And I just kind of knew I wouldn't like it. Um, I mean, I love electric guitar. I, I love playing electric bass, but I've always drawn more to acoustic side of everything. I just love my second guitar I got was like a 12 string. And I always like, I play mandolin too. And I've always been fascinated with just different acoustic, you know, instruments like that. So I didn't want to do that. Um, so basically it was kind of Matt Bone, the bass doctor, and then Rick Turner. And I would kind of consult other bass players. Um, and I tried all this different stuff. So it was kind of this whole journey. Like, how can I have, uh, that I don't want to just put the upright bass down and pick up the electric bass just because the stage volume's up. So I sort of went on this whole quest um, from, yeah, for ba very basic pickups to then I got the Rick Turner one, which is sort of designed. It's really invasive. You actually cut the bridge. You slit, you know, you cut like four slots in the bridge and you put the piezos in there and it's like, a million db it's like super powerful you know um so that was kind of the start of it um and then i sort of went on this um other whole tangent because i love to do with the, the play with the bow um a lot too and so that was you know kind of doing classical and and jazz a little bit when i first started upright bass just you know a few gigs here and there but mostly like at cabrillo and stuff um the the uh, Turner pickup sounded amazing for picking. Um, but then for the bow, it was just like really dark. And so I started researching other bass players. Um, and uh, who's the guy? John Goldsby. Who's, um, he has like a whole jazz ar arco using the bow in jazz method book. And he, he plays for the WDR big band in Germany. Um, so he was kind of like the, you know, amazing jazz big band player, but also a world-class jazz bower. And so I'd kind of formed a, I don't know if I'd say a friendship, but 
I started messaging him and he was actually really nice to me. He gave me a blurb about one of the first albums I released. Really nice quote. But I was kind of asking him of like, how do you do this? You know? And so he recommended having those clip on mics, um, you know, where you attach it to the tailpiece and it's got a little gooseneck. And he was like, that's the only really good way to do it. And so I, I bought one of those. Um, what was it? It wasn't a DPA. It was, uh, I forget. It was the other kind of popular one. I've sold it now. That was cool. Um, it definitely got you a little more air um, in the sound. But then you're at this problem again where you're on stage, you know, and you've probably been to some shows with like Keith and stuff and where we... You know, we'll be quiet, we'll play ballads, but we also will be ridiculously yeah. loud at times where it's like, yeah. geez, we're just a nice little acoustic band here. And <laughs> we're just like as loud as a rock band. So I realized that the then there was going to be bleed through <laughs> into the microphone. So bass player, we always like to be by the drums. Then the drums are going to come through my pick my microphone. So I'd be running the pickup and the mic at the same time. Um... And it wasn't really, I didn't really think that it sounded that great either because I felt like it's also, it's designed to sort of reject some sound and reject that feedback. But then that's also rejecting all those qualities that make microphones in front of an acoustic instrument just sound perfect, you know, and you're really hearing a representation that's clear. Um, so I sort of ditched the mic and um, I forget who was the other bass player. Vytold Drek, I think he's like a Polish, sort of avant-garde Polish bass player guy, class, really good classical player. And I noticed, I started noticing guys were running two pickups. Um, so they would, you know, and have some kind of way to blend them. And so then I was probably, <laughs> Rick Turner has been very nice to me and Matt Bone. I, you know, I feel like I was asking so much of them. And I said, okay, now, you know, I'm coming back. I want to now, I want to run two pickups. And I decided the Fishman uh, full circle was very, it was kind of almost thin sounding and really, I want to say brittle, but kind of that more high end, the, the treble kind of side of it all. And then Turner pickup had this nice deep core to it. And so I decided to try the full circle. And I think, yeah, Vitold Rect, I think was using the full circle and he was bowing a lot, amplified. And so uh, I wanted to run those two pickups together, but I didn't want to have a bunch of plugs and junk on the floor and wall warts and all that kind of crap, and I didn't want to bring a little mixing board. So um, I talked to Rick, and he he basically designed this whole thing for me that was an 18-volt blender box. Um, mm -hmm. And it's sort of... And, and, uh, that I can plug two pickups into and I can sort of blend one or the other. And there's just simple three knobs, volume, tone, and blend. Um, so sometimes if I'm really playing at, at really loud volumes, especially the Latin jazz band, all the percussion, the drums, the horns, everything, I'll go to the Turner pickup a little more. If I'm going to maybe take a bowed solo, I might go and turn it right to the, to the, to the full circle a little bit more and get that sound a little bit. Um, and then, so that was really awesome. Then I was able to run two pickups with this beautiful preamp. And then I, um, then I wanted it on board. You know, I kind of felt like, <laughs> you, you know, you see, that was ridiculous. I know. Or like, I'd see like, uh, yeah, I was just, I was definitely like, 
going crazy. Every <laughs> one of you are like this. Every stand-up bassist I know is like this. It's just... I... <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I bugged the shit out of those guys. Yeah, and I know, like, after it was all over, I kind of realized, like, I was like some guy who was like, you know, I want a car, but I'd love a espresso machine in the glove box. And then, I, you know, I'd love a, in the trunk, a fold-out toilet, so I don't never eat it. You know, I just had all this stuff. I was like, it's like, yeah, we can do this, but no one else wants this. Like, <laughs> you know, it was just <laughs> insane. Um... So between Rick and Matt, yeah, then and Matt was sort of the, uh, he actually kind of did the, Rick made like a little beautiful plate that the pickup could mount on, this beautiful, like, I think it's like maple thing. And then Matt actually sawed the hole in the side of my bass, I know. And then I had yeah, Andy Weiss, the drummer, the first when he first saw it. It's like, wow, you paid people to cut holes in your bass? This <laughs> was totally sacrilegious. Um, and I'm a left-hander, a lefty, so I already, dis basically, if I get an in a upright bass, I destroy it for the 90% of the world because I'm making it into a lefty. Um, so, like, I don't, I would never want to have, like, a bass from, like, the 1800s or anything like that yeah. because I feel like, you, you know, you're just, I, I'm basically ruining these instruments to just do what I need them to do. Um, but, yeah, so... How, I'm confused. When you say you're ruining them, I mean, aren't you just making a new nut and a new bridge and changing the string arrangement? Um, well, for an up that, but also there's more on the on string instruments. There's a sound post and a bass bar inside. Oh, you actually not, have the top removed and the bass bar moved, which are not symmetrical. Yeah. So ah, yeah, and it's funny because yeah, when I first got uh, this, this is the first upright bass I ever got here um and uh paul uh rest his soul paul hostetter helped me get this bass and he was i don't know why so many people were so nice to me he drove me up he probably had some other business too to do but he drove me up to san francisco um gosh what was the place to this little you know instrument you know shop um to pick up this bass um, and helped me like literally carried it out the door for me because I didn't even know how to carry a bass yet. Um, and so he, he helped me kind of choose a bit the bass I wanted. I, I wanted a solid carved bass, um, um, even if it was like a lower quality solid bass. So Paul helped me get that, and he he um, did a little fingerboard work to make it symmetrical. He and yeah did a new nut and a new bridge, and sort of flipped it around lefty for me. And I played that for a couple years, and then I had, uh, um, I went to this uh, workshop with Vinny, or what's his name? Uh, um, gosh darn, he plays. He's a great bass player. Uh, oh, I can't remember his name. Uh, he plays with this guy Vinny Golio. It's kind of avant-garde jazz in Southern California. Um, I'm forgetting his name now. But he was an amazing upright bass player, East Coast guy, and then in L.A. as well. Um, and he was like, hearing me play, he said, you know, your bass is not is not like uh, doing the thing it's supposed to do as like a double bass. When the sound post and bass bar are in the correct position and you pick, you know, and it sort of resonates the note, like I guess, I'm not sure exactly, I'm probably going to be wrong here, but something where it resonates an octave lower than the note you play, and so there's like a whole thing that happens with that. 
And he said, your base is not doing that thing, you know? And I sort of, <laughs> oh, okay. So then once again, I had, uh, went to a local luthier and okay, you know, thousand bucks, we'll take the top off and we'll switch your base bar and sound post around. Um, and so then I did notice that it's, yeah, it really has this tone. Like, like I can play, you know, I can hold a bass my way if it's a right-handed strong bass. So I'm kind of playing it upside down and I can still actually get around on it, you know, as a lefty, I'm ever, I'm sure every lefty has that experience where, you end up playing someone's right-handed guitar because that's just what's sitting there and you pick it up. So I know any any lefty is going to have some competence playing upside down as well as strung the correct way. Um, so times I've toured where maybe they've rented me like a right-handed upright bass, I'm still able to like play it and get the notes all right. But I started noticing like, yeah, I'm picking it the other way instead of the way like a righty would pick it into the away from the sound post and kind of into the bass bar. And I know, oh yeah, like, geez, I can play all the notes and get it, but the tone is just not happening. Um, so it is pretty essential, yeah, to have that happen. And then once you do that, it's pretty irreversible or, or you can reverse it, but you, you know, you got to take the top off. Yeah, and you yeah, gotta... yeah. So it's pretty invasive and pretty, um, I, no, I, I, but so, I'm... <laughs> a friend of mine up in Petaluma, Bruce Sexauer, does a lot of work with basses, and, and I've watched him repair a few, and I've understood, you know, the bass bar and the tone post and, you know, how they work in, in basses and violins and everything. I never, ever imagined that you had to reverse it when you switched the hand, but it makes sense um, now that you've explained it. Um, we also, we did the podcast with uh, James May, who uh, has the ultratonic pickup and he was one of the people who developed the tone dexter which is an ir response box that's really amazingly cool when you get a chance you might want to look it up because it sounds amazing on basses and cellos and violins the the tone dexter, tone dexter. um and we have a it, one of our old po podcasts with james may it, it talks about it some but uh you know next time you're ready for some uh advanced electronic play around with basses uh you might want to look into it it does a, it does a very strange thing in that it it will listen to the microphone and listen to the instrument at the same time and then well, it takes those and mixes them up with a little tabasco and you know a little cayenne and yeah. it comes out is this really um the users of it are um all over it because it's such a clean acoustic sound and we did we did one with uh james nash from the waybacks and james is like james carried a computer to get it <laughs> uh -huh. for a while he carried a laptop for a while and he, you know he ran everything through that because it, that was the only way he could really you know between a ten thousand seat hall and a, and a 250 seat hall what are you gonna do you know i mean it, it sounds differently in the room it Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by your, um, your audio, uh, your audio class. It, it, I think the best example that we've seen recently. Everybody's seen. Let it be. Everybody's seen. Get, everybody's seen. Get back. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's seen it. But I just went and re. I gotta see the whole thing though. Yeah. I just went and rebought. Let it be. And there, there's a new release of it and things like that. And when you listen to that. 
and listen to and and visually now you're in the room with them you hear how martin's mic placement you know his mic placement was so balanced for ringo mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of drums on ringo you know our mics on ringo there's a microphone up top and there's something down below but that they're playing live with a PA system in there. Yeah, right, huh? They're playing live in a, in a room with a PA system. There's no headphones. And yet, when you really critic, critically listen to, 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 to Let It Be, the drum sounds are so blended to the song. Yeah, it's... It's, you know, uh, and it's Ringo. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's the four of them. And and really, the five of them with George Martin. Yes, for sure. Because oh. that is just a um, a a. It's brilliantly engineered, brilliantly, and and it's. I always thought it sounded good, but now seeing Get Back, and really just realizing, holy shit. Yes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, a lot. It really is. I mean, you, they, they, they're they probably doing that with six mics. That's seven, amazing. Seven mics, eight mics, maybe? On the entire... Yeah, yeah, no, that's... Yeah, I think... Yeah, a lot of it's the instruments, the performance, and something about that synergy of actually playing together versus sort of overdubbing with the click track and all that. And yeah, I just did a section in my... When we came back from Christmas break, we started with the drum miking again it's all like a lot of intro surface level stuff but we uh you know just miking a drum set and just the basic thing but we looked at the um uh what was it glenn, glenn johns glenn johns yeah the guy who did for like john bonham so we're, yeah 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 we're watching all these videos you know and and amazing resource youtube and stuff and you know all these heavy metal drummers with every little tiny lug on the drum sets mic'd, you know and it's like a million things you know and then we get over, it's like, I'm like, okay, um, John Bonham, the greatest, you know, we watched a Rick Beato thing about like how to get that John Bonham. And it's like, holy moly, you know, that's like three mics. Yeah. And that whole, like, just that where he realized you could do the other one coming in from the side, that's going to then get the snare and everything too. And just that. And, and, yeah. and, and you're really in the hands of the, in the hands of the, the artist of the drummer. Because, I mean, you really listen to that and you realize that, well, I don't necessarily need to mic every one of those toms, you know? Yeah. And in some cases, I really want to hear the kick, but in other cases, I don't want to hear the kick hardly at all. And yeah. really, it, let it be. It, 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 it's, been in my, it's been in my car and I've been on some drives. Um, I went up to went up to see Tad in Berkeley two weeks ago, and then I went to LA nice. this last weekend, and and it, I've listened to it an awful lot. And with the visual, man, that that is just that is something. I mean, I think about listening to Henley go through fifty different snare drums. Uh huh. You know? <laughs> okay, hold on. You know, <laughs> not, not not real. You know, but but uh, it it really is. I think awesome. uh, I, I, I can't thank you enough for this conversation, Steve. Oh, no. Are you kidding? It's I'm great. It's just great conversation. I mean, and really inside 
somebody who just wants to do something really, really great. And I know you do. Uh, I mean, no. it's, it's, it's yeah. uh, we, we should talk a little, I, I want to, I want to make sure that people know, first of all, are you taking online students? Um, not, uh, not right now. Okay. Um, I, I did teach on like last year I had to do my whole band director gig on zoom. Mm -hmm. So I did, you know, that, um, and I'm actually kind of pretty sure that I'll, you know, if I end up not doing the band director full-time thing next year, that I would like to get some private students mm -hmm. and um, sort of go in that direction a little bit too. So I would probably, you know, after a certain amount of time, I would definitely be sort of advertising <laughs> that I would like, you know, could do some online lessons or some private students. Um, but generally with the band director gig, it's so consuming that I've kind of, and I even tried to have some private students along with that because I'd have, you know, not that often, but a few times on occasion, someone would ask to take some lessons and I tried to do it. And I just kind of realized like my teaching bandwidth was kind of taken up with that band director job and then all the gigs I was doing and stuff. Um, and people can find your music on Bandcamp. Yes. Yeah. And even, yeah, my website, just uh, Steve Uccello. U uh, C C E L L O Steve Uccello dot com has a link to uh, my Bandcamp stuff and to Ash on Dust, which is really um, fantastic. Uh, yes, Jeff Schmidt. Yeah, really fantastic. Really fantastic. There's some. I've I've been talking to Steve about for as long as I can remember, and it still stays up there that this guy should be writing for um, motion pictures. Oh, you were so nice to me. Yeah, no, yeah this guy should really be writing for motion pictures because it's his work is really organic and environment environmental and and you really feel you don't it's not out there but it's it's so unique that you're just going wow that's really sounds cool that's oh, really gotta... really really a wonderful backdrop um, it's definitely and... a dream of mine to do that and that's kind of one of those other little directions of life where the teaching thing is like i i think i literally like the day i said yes to that job i was like the day before like i'm gonna contact some film students at csumb and i'm just gonna <laughs> see if i can like get some experience doing this and then it was like the next day all right i'm just not gonna <laughs> but i am uh build, building a library so i have a whole little you know sort of you do the deadline thing i'm sort of i have all this music that sort of no one's heard that it's like my little library i'm kind of building up and i want to try to sort of yeah kind of have my own little i have like a little drone thing to it called the uccello drone package right where uh which uh, visually to be behind to be behind something on screen it is truly it, 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 it it's it's peanut butter and jelly you know it it, it 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 it's it's just right there um and look for steve out with love with uh lauren lauren monroe and love army or uh the big love band the big love band is big is, love, band. Is big love yeah. band yeah and i think they do have something yeah called the big love army yeah there's there I, I yeah i get i get those notifications yeah and, and things like that but um tad yeah, sounds like we're going to have a lot of links on the uh, forum webpage yeah. <laughs> uh, for people to follow down many rabbit holes to enjoy. Yeah. Um, 
So are, are we going to let Steve go without asking him the uh, desert island question? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you ask. I'm not going to. He lives too close to me to ask this question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Steve. Looks like you got by without getting the desert island question. <laughs> oh, is that the <laughs> which? What food would I eat on it if I only could choose one or whatnot? <laughs> you know, great. What? Yeah, if you could only choose one. There you go. One. There's a new one. <laughs> There's a There's new a, one, yeah. My half Italian side coming out there. Oh, or boy. The album, like which album? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Probably Jimi Hendrix, Axis, Bold as Love. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah great. Mike. We've had a lot of revolvers. Uh -huh. no. Or Miles Davis sketches of Spain, maybe. Yeah, really. Um, somebody else is, was talking about sketches of Spain re recently that that I was listening to, and he was so far out there. It was just really not what they expected to do at all. And, yeah, and they they went and did it. They went and did that. Yeah, Gil Evans, the arranger on that. Yeah, he was a heavy cat, and in fact, there was even like you know Miles and Jimi Hendrix. I were. There was always talk of a collaboration, and I think at a later time, Gil Evans didn't he do like a music of Hendrix? I don't know, but but um, I think there's like yeah. sort of a orchestral or some kind of like with wind ensemble something that I think he went on to do like a music of Hendrix thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Axis Bold is love. That's yeah, probably my favorite Hendrix wow. album of all time. I mean, I love you know Electric Ladyland is like I know the sort of the definitive one but yeah i think bold is love was my i some reason i always like i said I, the acoustic thing i loved and so what i loved most about hendrix was the clean i mean i loved his dirty and his blues and all the super ripping stuff is cool but my favorite of his was you know one rainy wish or castles made of sand that really really clean pure kind of sound of his that's really my favorite side. Where would we be today if we had Jimmy? You know? <laughs> wow, you know, you, it, 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 there, there, there are artists that are out there that are that are constantly changing, and then there are artists that are out there that are, you know, doing the seven hits from 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 sixty <laughs> nine, right. you know. But um, that he'd that probably must be been like a... doing video game music or something. Like he would be you know, <laughs> like he would have some like. He, you know, he probably would, I would imagine he would embrace, like, you know, all the, I don't know, even like silly stuff, like the TikTok things or stuff. Like, I bet he would be all into like different little, you know, he probably would have just progressed with everything as it progressed. And he'd probably be like, whatever the next thing would be, he'd probably be already doing that before everybody. <laughs> I'd just be scared his manager would book him into the big room at Caesars for six weeks. <laughs> yes. Uh, Tad, we have a new last question. The food? No. Where do you think Where do you think Jimi Hendrix would be today? <laughs> we, have, we have a new last question. This is great. There we go. I'm happy to have that. Um, awesome. Steve, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm honored to be as a bass player. I'm I'm uh, I'm always used to sort of deferring any questions to someone else. So I really uh, appreciate that you guys uh, asked me to do this, and it's just yeah, it's totally. Oh.
high point experience for me. Thank you so much. Maybe at some point when you're on the road, we'll do another one with you. You can fill us in on how it's uh, how it is to be out on the road again, and uh, we'll get a little more in depth. Find out how you uh, mic uh, saw. Uh, <laughs> Contact Mike. He's <laughs> bowing. Uh, you're bowing that saw, correct? <laughs> I've used it, yeah, sometimes with yeah. the little mallet, but mostly, yeah. yeah, bowing it. And Yeah, 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 you're bowing that saw, yeah. It's not I, even a musical saw. It's like an actual hardware store. But I've done it for some just if special effects and stuff. And that's not the one you reset the neck on the mandolin with, is it? Oh, my God, that's <laughs> my mandolin saga. Don't, uh, yeah. We won't go there. We won't go there. Steve, totally. thank Hey, epoxy. Oh, epoxy. Oh, yeah, epoxy. Oh, no. <laughs> um, After I tried to take it to Griffin in there, it's like, just buy a new man. No, no. Don't well, bring it, it in here. The mandolin, you know, but. Don't bring that um, thing in here. No. <laughs> yeah, and it was kind of like, dude, we're not going to fix this crappy mandolin. Like, <laughs> just get it in. But, yeah, that and Pete, Pete Hicks and, yeah, helped me restore that whole thing. And Yeah, it was it was a fun. It was fun watching that, that come up. That um, was. Yeah, I definitely uh, was really happy to bring that one back from the dead. Yeah, yeah. I uh, wish you all the success and have just a fantastic afternoon. Thank Great. you so much, yeah, yeah, Richard. Richard. Yeah, you yeah. guys are. This was just was a pleasure. Yeah, big for... fun, big fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been it's been really nice to speak with you guys. We'll uh, um, we'll catch up. Thanks so much, right. everybody. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and uh, hope you. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. For more music-related fun, please join the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at scgcpf or santacruzguitarplayers.com. If you have any questions or possible podcast topics, please contact us. If you have a product or service that you feel would be of value to our listeners, please consider adding your support and keeping the coffee pot on. Contact us for more information. We ask that you hit the like, follow, bell, or bookmark buttons so we can keep you informed of upcoming podcast episodes. We hope you enjoyed Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Now it's time to go play your guitar. <laughs>